very great pleasure and honor to have been asked to give this lecture. And I was asked specifically to take the story of the October Revolution from the death of Lenin through the appalling years of Stalin's dictatorship and uh, up to the Second World War. And it's impossible to do this properly without paying some initial attention to what the October 1917 revolution was. And I think we've probably had more discussion of this uh, in the United Kingdom, in the United States, and in Western Europe, probably also Eastern Europe, than there was last year in the 100th anniversary year of the October Revolution in its birthplace in Russia. And there's a reason for this, that the current ruling elite, and especially Vladimir Putin, don't like revolutions. Uh, they don't want another revolution. So they don't want to incite people into uh, any idea that a violent seizure of power um, might be desirable today. So that uh, the, the whole topic was muzzled or muffled uh, last year um, and never comm commemorated in the way that it would have been, say, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. And it's very important, I think, to lose the usual Western stereotype of Lenin, the party, and the masses, as if a great mechanical engine moved on Russia in the year 1917 and rumbled over it and uh, produced a revolution that was almost inevitable because of its titanic pre-planned strength. It wasn't like that at all. The leaders of the Communist Party, the Bolsheviks, who took power in October 1917, yes, they were doctrinaires, but they had no very specific plan as to how to make their revolution work and survive before they seized power. So they had doctrines, but the doctrines were very, very uh, generalised and in many senses uh, were vague. And they had a very jumbled idea of the future of the economy, of society, uh, of the people over whom they intended to rule. And more than that, they pinned their hopes on the transformation of their own country, what was left of the old Russian Empire, on the achievement of a broader revolution, a wider revolution, ultimately a world revolution, but in the shorter term, still a continent-wide revolution, which they called the European Socialist Revolution, which they thought they were going to inaugurate. They thought that they stood at the threshold of the dawn of a new human era and that they were going to be its initiators. Russia would be at the vanguard of that process, um, but it wouldn't necessarily be the main locomotive of change. In fact, they thought that uh, without a communist Germany, a communist Russia would not be able to succeed. So that was their initial uh, vision. And they would have had no chance of implementing this vision if it hadn't have been for the extraordinary dissolution of the Russian imperial state that followed the February Revolution of 1917 and the downfall of the Tsar, Nicholas uh, the second, and then the ensuing chaos, 
the disintegration of the political mechanisms, the falling apart of the administrative structures, the collapse of the urban sector of the economy, and the breakdown of relations between town and countryside. All of this happened in 1917, as did at last the falling apart of the old Russian army itself, as peasants in uniform streamed home from the ranks, in many cases from the trenches, uh, in many other cases from the urban garrisons, and went back to their villages in quest of a share in the land reform that was about to take place. So that the Bolsheviks had their choice, had their chance, because of the extraordinary things that were happening in one of the great European empires uh, of the day. All the other empires had their problems. Britain had had its problems before the First World War. It had problems in the course of the First World War with the, uh, the 1916 Irish Rising. The Germans were facing terrible economic problems in 1917 itself. Uh, the French were having uh, mutinies in their armed forces. The Austro-Hungarians equally were, were facing uh, a future with enormous strains, but the Russians had it worse than anyone else. And that gave the Bolsheviks their chance. That gave the chance for these doctrinaire leaders... Lenin, Trotsky, Stalin, Zinoviev, Kamenev, to come forward and propose that the answer was revolution in Russia, another revolution in Russia, followed by a revolution elsewhere in Europe that would relieve the problems involved in the making of revolution in the first place back in Russia. And most people in 1917 did not give them much chance of survival. And even many of the Bolshevik leaders did not give themselves a tremendous chance of survival in power. They had this phrase that they were living and ruling, sitting on their suitcases. In other words, they imagined that they had to have their clothes packed in case as they had done before 1917, they had to flee back into the political underground for their lives this time, not just then the threat of prison, uh, but uh, uh, a bloody uh, fate awaiting them as the counter-revolutions got their hands on them. Uh, so no one really gave them much chance of survival, and most people at the time of the October Revolution, were thinking about something other than would the Bolsheviks have a state that would last for decades and decades. They were thinking, which side is going to win the Great War? Would it be the Germans or would it be the Allies? And what would happen if the Germans won? What would happen to Russia if the Germans won? Most people realised that the result of a German victory would be the breakup of the old Russian uh, Empire, and most and that most most of them assumed that large chunks of Eastern Europe and East Central Europe would become, at the very least, a protectorate uh, of the German state. And if the Allies won, if by chance, the Western Allies triumphed over the Germans on the Western Front, then it was assumed that the result would be that the Allies would eventually turn on communist Russia and, by superior force, overwhelm the Bolsheviks. So we're talking about a, a revolution that we knew survived seven decades, but no one at the time knew what the result was going to be. And the Bolsheviks went on thinking as optimistically as they possibly could. Not all of them were optimistic. 
Half of the Bolshevik party left the Bolshevik party in the first seven or eight months of the October Revolution. Um, so dispirited were they by the failure of the Bolsheviks to fulfill their promises. Why were they so disenchanted with their leadership? One reason was that there wasn't a European socialist revolution. There were outbursts of uh, possibilities in Munich in 1919, in the whole of Hungary in 1919, but the basic premise of the October Revolution did not come to fulfilment. The Allies won the Great War and stopped the seeds of European Socialist Revolution uh, from growing into flower. Furthermore, already in 1918, the Germans had come to the um, frontline town of Brest-Litovsk uh, and said to the Soviet representatives, to the communist representatives, you are militarily weak, we are the strong ones. You must now make peace with us, separate peace with us, or else we will overrun communist Russia and your revolution will be at an end. And in March 1918, the communists, so far from spreading their revolution into Central Europe and then Western Europe, actually had to give way to the Germans. And before the end of the uh, Great War, the First World War, they had to disclaim sovereignty over Ukraine and what we now call Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and retreat into European Russia as the price of peace. So the, the vision of a European socialist revolution started drastically to fade almost as soon as the October Revolution had taken place. It also turned out that the very social class on which the revolution was based, namely the, the industrial working class of the towns, was at the very best divided about the purposes of the Bolsheviks. They had voted for the Bolsheviks in 1917, but as hunger spread to the towns, as factories and mines closed down, uh, workers started to reconsider. Uh, and they thought they had uh, the opportunity to reconsider because they could vote again in the Soviet elections, the workers' councils that they had set up back in 1917. And in response to this, the Bolsheviks started to take action, repressive action, against the class in whose name they had made the revolution back in October 1917. So instead of an upward unilinear progress on the graph, the line started to be broken in several big Russian uh, cities And furthermore, the other class that the Bolsheviks had turned to, the peasantry of Russia and Ukraine and of all the outlying uh, areas of the former Russian Empire, they were very eager to take the land that Lenin and, and Trotsky said was their right uh, to... Um, take hold of so long as they continued uh, to work it but they showed no gratitude they behaved like peasants usually do they just got on with their lives and looked for their family interests their village interests and they turned their backs on the appeals of the Bolsheviks to deliver their harvest to the towns at a time when the Bolsheviks couldn't 
render to them the spades and the shovels and the, um, uh, the fencing uh, that would be useful for agriculture and was regarded as by the peasants as due to them for their hard work in the fields. So it wasn't a revolution of gratitude in the countryside. So when these two great classes of the population then started to waver, and in some cases to rebel against the Bolsheviks, then the Bolsheviks had trouble, even in that reduced state of Muscovy, into which they'd been crammed by the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in March 1918. And the Bolsheviks started to recognise also that there were more fundamental social attitudes in the people over whom they had started to rule than they had imagined possible before 1917. Even by the census of the late 1930s, it was recognised that most people in the former Russian Empire were religious believers. The Bolsheviks were militant Marxists, militant atheists. They wanted a world without religion, without the opium uh, of the people. There was a lot then that was fundamental, that was not a new situational problem for the Bolsheviks caused by the revolution. It was the underlying condition of the attitudes and traditions, not just of the Russians, but of the, the other peoples of the former uh, Russian Empire. Local traditions were very strong, religious traditions were very strong, um, and people had guns in their hands. Uh, the Russian Imperial Army was the biggest that was involved in the Great War. They not only had guns in their hands, they knew how to, to use them. And all over Russia, there were soldiers returning from the trenches and from the garrisons, ready and able to use those guns and to stand up for themselves because 1917 had taught them one thing, that revolutions are made by the people if the people so desires. So this was a... This was a situation where the people had it um, within their potential uh, to reject the revolution uh, that they found uh, uncongenial to their interests. And all this time, the urban economy was collapsing as more and more uh, employers, private employers, were either nationalised uh, or fled to the south and fled abroad. Uh, the urban sector of the economy uh, was falling apart. And in those circumstances, the Bolsheviks could see that they were losing their proletariat. The proletariat which had existed and whose existence had justified the October Revolution. And furthermore, the dog that hadn't barked in 1917 very loudly, namely anti-socialist counter-revolution, started not only to bark, but to bite. The counter-revolutionaries, headed by... Uh, former officers in Nicholas II's army, the so-called white officers, the white guards, the white armies, started to form in southern Russia and in Ukraine and in the Urals and uh, western Siberia and in Estonia and started to pin the Bolsheviks into an even smaller area of Russia. And in those circumstances, the Bolsheviks had to invent a strategy for survival. And they were very, very adaptive. Uh, the one thing that they were sure about was that they were not going to go down without a fight. And they looked 
around for agencies and institutions and forces that could sustain them. And what did they find? They themselves had destroyed the old imperial army. Uh, They had to form their own army. But they couldn't trust this new army because the commanders who they were forced to rely upon were not Bolsheviks. Most of them were not Bolsheviks. They couldn't trust their own new Red Army that they started to form at the beginning of 1918. They couldn't trust the civil service. They couldn't trust the old ministerial personnel of uh, the imperial government. They couldn't trust, obviously, they couldn't trust the rival political parties. They certainly couldn't trust the church because they themselves were atheists. They were enemies of the church. So they thought perhaps we could rely upon the Soviets, the workers' councils, but as I've already said, the workers' councils were turning against the uh, stream of the October Revolution. There was chaos in the trade union movement. So what were they going to do? Almost by improvisation then, they, they said to themselves, the only people that we can trust are ourselves. Where are we best organised? It's inside the Communist Party. And so they made the party the peak of the pyramid of state, mainly because they couldn't trust any of the other agencies of power in 1918 and 1919. They stumbled towards then the invention of the one-party state. There hadn't been one in history before, but it would be a one-party state where the party actually did the governing. It was the one institution that could be relied on. They also nationalised the banks, and the large factories, uh, so as to get state control over the assets and the stocks of the old pre-1917 economy, particularly the armaments and the military equipment in the first instance. Uh, But they also wanted to have control and possession of the gold that had been left to them by Nicholas II via the provisional government uh, that had preceded the Bolsheviks uh, in power. So they nationalised the urban sector of the economy and they introduced very severe measures to take hold of the rural sector as well, even though that didn't, in most cases, involve nationalisation. So you had the party forming the one-party state in the middle of a civil war. You had an economy that was already largely uh, controlled by the state, even before the Bolsheviks uh, took power, but was now much more uh, heavily controlled. And furthermore, you had a a further aspect of uh, the Soviet state as it lasted for seven more decades you had cultural quarantine. In other words, the Bolsheviks insulated Russia from abroad and from alien forces, alien in the sense of being alien to Bolshevism. It was only in 1922 that the censorship uh, was set up in a formal way. But it was in operation long before that. The institution was called Glavlit, a pre-publication censorship for prose, poetry, painting, uh, music, um, and eventually for films. And the fourth characteristic of this one-party state was the right that the one-party state claimed over the whole of society. 
Society was to be a uh, a huge uh, asset at the disposal of the leadership that knew better than society and had the opportunity to mould that society because of the cultural uh, quarantine and because of the forces at its disposal, like the new political police, the Cheka, which was the forerunner of the uh, KGB. This was the fourth great um, building block of the one-party, one-ideology state. And to make sure that this party could govern the state, they had to turn the Bolshevik party, the Communist Party, from being a rather chaotic and disputatious agency of revolution into a disciplined force. It had to be much more like a traditional army. It had to be militarist, not only in as much as it would lead the uh, red forces in the Civil War, most Bolsheviks in the Civil War were in the Red Army. So they were learning the arts of war and becoming more militarised. They were wearing boots and uh, leather uniforms by choice. They took to this uh, remarkably quickly. And those who didn't take to it, they just left the party. So what we have then within... Uh, a few years of the seizure of power is a party that has a confidence from its own f fact of survival. It had won the Civil War. But it won the Civil War at the price of alienating the very social groups in whose name the revolution had been made. The workers had been striking for better wages and more food, all through 1918 and 1919. The peasants had been resentful of the way that the urban squads came into the villages and seized the grain, uh, oblivious of their own demands for uh, worth, worthy payment. And the soldiers and sailors... Uh, mutinied in several uh, garrisons, most notably and famously in Kronstadt in 1921, when the whole naval garrison declared itself uh, fed up with the commissars um, and the dictatorship and wanted a, a truly all-party uh, socialist revolution and not the communist one-party state. So that at the very moment of their victory, they had a problem. And they dealt with the problem by introducing the new economic policy. Uh, it was the brainchild of Lenin. It had been suggested by the other socialist parties for some years, that the only way to deal with this, this wave of hostility to uh, the government was to give to the people some of the things that they wanted. And the other socialist parties said, well, give political freedom and allow us to compete with you. The Bolsheviks thought... We have won the Civil War. We are not going to share the fruits of victory with our socialist opponents. But we will allow the peasants to trade their grain for private profit yet again in the local markets. And that way we will be able to regenerate the engine of urban rural trade. And that way then the towns will start to uh, revive. And that way the tension will start to go out of the political discontent. And this was the 
policy known as the new economic policy. It could just as easily, from the Russian, be translated as the new economic policy, politics because it was um, a political decision to make economic concessions in order to sustain the political hegemony of the Communist Party. And they still believed that ultimately there was going to be a European socialist revolution. So they thought this new economic policy would enable them to survive a few more years and then surely the Germans would have a revolution uh, being uh, of a superior level of industrial organisation and technology than uh, the Russians um, had achieved. They, they still believed in this, this idea that they'd had when they made the revolution back in 1917. But as the 20s wore on, they were annoyed, irritated, and horrified by what they saw. I have to say that Lenin had a hard time in imposing this new economic policy um, on his own party. Most Bolsheviks thought that making concessions to private enterprise was not why they had made the revolution back in 1917, so that uh, his leadership was crucial to the uh, introduction of a policy that saved the Bolsheviks' skin in 1921. But the problem was that as the years wore on, and Lenin died in 1924, it was clear that some peasants were trading very nicely, thank you, and becoming um, moderately wealthy. After all, the Ukraine, or Ukraine as we now call it, and southern Russia were the breadbasket of Central Europe before 1914. These were areas of the USSR that again became agriculturally very efficient. And the richer peasants started to employ the poor peasants uh, as labourers. This wasn't anything like what the Bolsheviks thought socialism ought to involve. And as the concessions were made to the non-Russian regions to have their own republics inside the USSR, have their own national tongues taught in the schools, have their own national press in the uh, newspapers and in the book trade. So nationalism started to raise its head um, quietly, cautiously at first, but more and more vociferously across the middle of the 1920s into the late 1920s. And again, the Bolsheviks said to themselves, we didn't make the revolution to see this happening. And as concessions were made to religious faith, especially to the denominations of Christianity that were not associated with the Russian Orthodox Church, and there were many millions of believers of that kind. And then again, all of the Muslims of Central Asia and the South and North Caucasus, so priests and imams and rabbis started to appear on the streets and were treated with respect uh, by the local populace. And again, the Bolsheviks said to themselves, this is not why we made the revolution. This is going backwards. We made a concession, thinking that either there would be a European socialist revolution or we would be able to use this concession from which to spring forward again into socialism. Instead of which, they saw rich peasants... They saw priests, uh, they saw Ukrainian national leaders emerging from the shadows. And in these circumstances also, 
They looked abroad and they felt sure that the Western powers, that the former Western allies would not tolerate the continued existence of the USSR. Every little diplomatic emergency with Finland and with Poland, both of which were uh, minor powers at the time in the 1920s, was interpreted by the Bolsheviks as evidence of a a malign, generalised purpose behind which stood Britain and France. So the, the Bolsheviks took the idea from the October Revolution that there would always be then a struggle between communism and capitalism and that the big imperial powers of Europe were the most dangerous enemies. Even if they claimed to have pacific purposes in the 1920s, they were not to be trusted. And add to this the recognition that the Bolsheviks employed astute economists who told them year after year that the technological gap between Soviet Russia and the advanced capitalist West was widening. So all of this created panic in the Bolshevik party, a panic that one man knew how best to deal with, Joseph Stalin. In 1928, then, he had won the battle for the political succession. He had seen off Leon Trotsky as leader of the left opposition, and in 1928, he tackled Nikolai Bukharin as the leader of the right deviation. And he was the the new Lenin. But he wouldn't have survived in power unless he had been able to say to the regional leaderships of the Communist Party that he had an alternative strategy. And what was that strategy? It was to have a new revolutionary, a positive revolutionary offensive against the wealthy peasants, against the priests, against the nationalists, against the old world that had been allowed to make its little shadowy corner into an ever bigger uh, area across the room of Soviet public life in the decade of the 1920s. Stalin said, we will use the one-party state, the one-ideology state uh, that Lenin left us. We will use the uh, control that we have over ideology. Uh, We will use the agencies of force that we have in the political police, the Cheka, and in uh, the Red Army, and we will impose a second revolutionary stage on the USSR. We will take the Lenin revolution into its next phase. And so he didn't abolish the architecture of the one-party state. He exploited it. He made it so that this one-party state would be the vanguard of the revolutionary offensive. And so he, he won the battle of the succession partly because he said, look, I have, a practical, I have a practical alternative. And unlike Trotsky, I'm not going to risk this revolution by constantly saying we've got to spread it to Europe. Yes. Stalin said, we want a European socialist revolution, but not at the price of risking the existence of our October revolution. Now, this appealed 
to large numbers of leading Bolsheviks at the center and in the localities. So Stalin didn't win just because he was a butcher, just because he was um, a dictatorial uh, type, just because he was a bureaucrat. He won because he had a practical um, strategy that appealed to a sufficiently wide number of Bolshevik leaders, and because it was a one-party state where the party really did govern, that was the constituency that took, um, took the main decision. And it took the main decision in favour of, of Stalin. There was no referendum on this revolutionary offensive. There hadn't been a referendum, actually, in 1917, after all. The nearest to a referendum was the election to the Constituent Assembly in December, uh, in November and December 1917. And that was abolished by the Bolsheviks by forceful uh, methods. So people's choice didn't come into this. And what did he do? He said, right, we Bolsheviks are modernizers. Uh, we're going to have rapid industrialization. We're going to collectivize the, ta- uh, collectivize the uh, agriculture and we're going to industrialize it. We're going to introduce tractors where once there were horses, horse-drawn plows. We're going to change not just the towns, we're going to expand the towns. Uh, but we're also going to modernize the villages we're going to create a superior form of modernity. Now, just go back to what was happening in the rest of the world in, in these years. In 1929 came the Wall Street crash. At this time, the whole of the world was looking for a new way of organising capitalism and failing through the 1930s to find one. Stalin was saying, forget capitalism. There's another way to realise modernity, and it's a superior way. It's the Leninist way, as he put it, actually. It was the Leninist, Stalinist way. Uh, A superior way then. Rapid industrialisation, agricultural uh, collectivisation, Increased centralised state control, not just over the economy, but over society. Massive expansion of educational uh, facilities. It was cheaper uh, to buy a book than it was to buy a packet of uh, cigarettes. Uh, And because so much was changed as Peasants were drawn into collective farms. Millions of them died because of the the brutal way that this uh, took place. The towns that were being established were little more than shanty towns uh, where the the standard of living was appallingly low. The whole basis of society was thrown up into the air and was coming down in pieces. In those circumstances, Stalin decided that the most effective option was to turn to the Russian people and say that the Russian people were the elder brother of the other peoples of the former Russian Empire. So he put this amalgam together then of Russianness, of uh, gigantomania, big was beautiful for Uh, Stalin, of uh, using force, of promoting people who had previously never dreamt of rising up the uh, societal uh, hierarchy, of of making the party into an even more important instrument of revolutionary change than it had been back in the early years of the October Revolution. And There was bloodshed. There was terrible starvation. Two to three million Ukrainians died 
uh, for want of food. Uh, in the 1932 to 1933 famine, half the population of Kazakhstan died. Half the Kazakh people perished in the period of the first five-year plan. This was an appalling way to bring about a societal uh, transformation. The cost was enormous. And it was at this point that criticism started to be muttered inside the vanguard of the revolutionary offensive, which was the Communist Party itself. So the very institution that Stalin had turned to for um, the enthusiasm that he needed, for the guidance that he needed, uh, for the sheer force that he needed to carry through this remarkable uh, revolution that was turning Russia into a truly important industrial and military power across the 1930s. That Communist Party had many leaders who said that the price was too high, the human price was too high, the chaos was interminable, uh, and uh, the risk was not worth running. There could be another uprising of the people, such as there had been back in 1920 to 1921, and such as the October Revolution, to, to a large extent, uh, had culminated in back in 1917. So the party started to turn against Stalin. And at the 1934 Party Congress, he heard about these criticisms. And he himself then realised that his own revolutionary offensive, that great second phase that started in 1928, was imperiled. And that he himself was imperiled. So what did he do? he started to round up the internal party traitors. So over the course of 1934, 35, 36, there's an intensification of measures against ex-oppositionists inside the party and current oppositionists and people who had muttered things about him but had not yet joined an oppositionist group and people who might harbour thoughts but weren't yet even muttering so that he decided on a, on a clinical surgical strike against that whole corpus of internal party opponents. And this became a grandiose strategy of butchery from 1934 through into 1938. He moved not only against the dissenting leaders of his own party, he also moved against the professional cadres who had helped him make that second phase of the revolution, that revolutionary offensive, possible back in 1928, 29, 30, 31, 32. So he turned against the engineers and the teachers and the scientists uh, and the uh, activists uh, in the arts. He turned, in other words, not just against his internal party critics who had real political power, but against the whole group in the population, the whole stratum of the population that was engaged in managing the society of the second revolutionary phase. And this is what we now call the Great Terror of 1937 to 1938, when Millions of people, at any one time, between one and two million people were in labour camps. And a very substantial minority of them didn't reach the labour camps because they were shot before 
they uh, were allowed to uh, reach it. And Stalin did this with a purpose. He reckoned that he had stabilised Lenin's revolution by industrialising the country, by militarising the country, by making the one-party state more powerful even than it had been before. But it had introduced its own essential instability. And that could only be dealt with by the removal of a whole generation of managerial personnel, whether it was in the trade unions or in the, uh, in the um, people's commissariats or in the artistic uh, arenas or in the schools or in the scientific uh, institutions. Whole swathes of the population then were treated as enemies of the people. And he did this in order to stabilise the revolution that he insisted was going to be uh, successful. And that is why I think it is wrong to suggest that there was no rationale to the Great Terror, that it was just the product of a malignant psychological quirk of a particular man. There's a pattern in what he did. It's a dreadful pattern. It's more scarifying because there was an underlying uh, thought process uh, at its basis. The revolution was stabilised at last. Uh, but it was stabilised, uh, yes, successfully. Russia became the second industrial power over the course of the 1940s. The Soviet Union... Uh, repelled the forces of Adolf Hitler uh, and went on to build uh, the nuclear bomb. But it transpired from all of this that Stalin had achieved great things with the USSR. He, he'd stabilised the Leninist revolution. He had built an industrial power and a great military power he turned the USSR into a superpower, along with the only other one, the USA. But he had pushed his country down into a cul-de-sac of development. It could never produce the consumer goods that he had promised would be the result of his new superior form of uh, modernity. In the long term, then, it was a doomed experiment incapable of providing Soviet citizens with the basic consumer goods that they increasingly in the 1950s and 1960s knew existed in the advanced Western capitalist uh, countries. So far from being a superior form of modernity, it proved to be a dreadfully sacrificial inferior one. Thank you very much. <laughs>